Hello, I'm Nicole Abadie and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia, and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabadie.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Helen Garner to Books, Books, Books to talk about her new book, One Day I'll Remember This, Diaries from 1987 to 1995, published by Text Publishing. Helen Garner is an award-winning author of novels, stories, works of non-fiction and two screenplays. Her writing career started in 1977 with Monkey Grip and other novels include Cosmo Cosmolino and The Spare Room. Her non-fiction includes The First Stone, Joe Cinque's Consolation and This House of Grief. In 2016, she was awarded the Yale University Wyndham Campbell Prize for Nonfiction, a highly prestigious international award. In 2019, she won the Australia Council Award for Lifetime Achievement in Literature. And it was said that her work, spanning more than four decades, has helped Australia define its identity and has created a genre all of its own. Earlier this year in 2020, she was awarded the Lloyd O'Neill Award, which recognises outstanding service to the Australian book industry. Helen, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm going to start by asking you a little bit about the diaries and the process of diary writing. When did you first start keeping diaries? It must have been when I was uh, a teenager. I don't, don't remember. I can't put a date to it. I think I was maybe about um, 14 or so. And uh, kept it up pretty much ever since, with a few gaps. I don't think I, I don't think I wrote much down when I was at university, for example. Um, but um, yeah, I, it seems to be something I've done every day for my entire adult life, anyway. And I read that you had burnt all of the diaries up until where the first volume of your diaries, Yellow Notebook, begins in 1978. Mm-hmm. Why did you burn the earlier ones? Oh, well, they were boring. Well, when I say they're boring, Monkey Grip came out of those earlier ones, my first book. Uh, so there were some bits in there that I that I obviously didn't find so boring. But um, something, I think I saw something on TV about the dismissal of the Whitlam government in more recent years. And I thought, oh, I wonder what I wrote about that in my diary. So I went and dug it out. I dug out the diary. This is This would be a good 10, 15 years ago this happened. I dug out the diary and turned up the date and I had vivid memories of outrage and uh, how we all rushed down into the streets to rush into the city and demonstrate. And uh, I found the the right date and the right book and I found that I hadn't even mentioned it. The whole diary of that period was about my... um, my, uh, I was going to say inner life, but that would be (laughs) too high a price on it. I, I... was mortified to see how um, self-obsessed I was at that point and how how self-obsessed the diary was at that point. And I thought, well, I could actually probably um, burn these and I don't think I'd miss any of it. 
So I just made a fire in the backyard and a little, um, you know, put together some bricks and made a little fire and burnt, burnt them. And, uh, and I haven't got any regrets at all. I read that you said that reading what you had written since 1978 ceased to embarrass you and that was why you were happy to publish the diaries after that date. Is that right? Yeah, well, there's plenty, there's plenty in them to, to embarrass me, but but they didn't completely mortify me and make me want to die, as <laughs> some of the earlier ones did. So they, they seemed to, and, and I seemed to locate the point at which they became less um, inward turned uh, when I when I lived briefly in in France mm. with my daughter back in 78 or whenever it was. Mm. And that's when I, around about that point, just were reading forward in, in the diaries from the burning point. Somehow there seemed to be more notation of what was going on around me. It was They became more notebook-like, I suppose, and there were little tiny fragments of stuff that seemed to have a, a bit of life to them. And so I thought, well, I'll just start here. And so that's why I did. Helen, when you sat down a few years ago and you decided that you would publish these diaries, you said that putting together the first volume was a very challenging experience for you. I think you might have even used the word traumatic somewhere. So I was wondering why was that? And then my next question was, has it been so challenging the second time with this second volume? Yes, uh, it, it was um, challenging both times. Um, challenging is one of those words that when you look at it, it seems to sort of fall apart and not not give up much meaning. So I'll, I'll try and be a bit more specific. Reading the diaries uh, is very, it's very interesting to me. It's interesting to see what I chose to record and to notice uh, how often I don't not often, but sometimes I haven't recorded things that I vividly remember. Um, that that surprised me both times. Like, for example, in this current one, uh, in the second volume, I when I, I, I got to the point where um, I married and I found I hadn't mentioned the wedding. The wedding doesn't appear. Oh, mm. There's a little tiny scene mm. Which is a conversation between my father and my friend, a friend of mine, whom, whom in the book I call the Polish philosopher. Yeah. and that's pretty much all that um, that I wrote down. Mm. And but I look back and I see that often times when I was happy, I tended to not to be writing so much. Mm. Uh, times where things were going well, uh, that I didn't have such a strong need to write. Mm. Often, uh, what I'm, why I'm writing in the diary seems to be to sort of calm down because something's bothering me or something's happened that I feel has got some sort of meaning that I don't really understand yet. So I think I'll just write it down. Um, so it was very surprising, anyway, to find the things that of which I have a very vivid memory just in my walking around the world mind uh, sometimes just simply weren't recorded. And that, that's a bit annoying because there's nothing more bracing than finding a contemporaneous record of something which you think you remember well. And having spent a lot of time in law courts over the last few years, I've got a bit of an angle on memory and mm. how, how strange it is, what a mysterious process it is. Mm. So it, it was very interesting to see how something that I did remember vividly turns out 
not to have been as I had quite recalled it. Mm, fascinating. Yeah, it, it is a mysterious process. So in that in that regard, it, it greatly interested me. Um, it is awful to find uh, how stupid you were when you were young, how naive and how cruel sometimes, how harsh, how self-important or um, self-pitying sometimes. There, there are some really awful things that you come across. But, but I, I, did, I did make a, an agreement with myself at the beginning before I started the first one that I wouldn't um, rewrite, rewrite the record. The only thing I would allow myself to do was to cut. Uh, so I would call it, somebody um, interestingly referred to this process as curating. And I'm not so sure if that's right. I mean, it's a wonderful word because it gives dignity to what's really a sort of blood and guts struggle with your own embarrassment and shame. But um, I, it's only really did I um, polish up mm. an entry. I, I, but, but that wasn't so hard because, because I, in the diary I really do write as well as I can. I, I'm not writing for an audience. I'm not writing for an imagined reader, and the imagined reader is sort of me 30 years ago, 30 years in the future. But, um, yeah, so I, I didn't feel embarrassed about how badly written it was. You've said that reading somebody's diary should ideally have a double effect. The first point you say or the first purpose is it shows you the world from the point of view of that writer at that time. The second point, you say, is to, for the reader to keep turning your attention back to your own experience, thus giving you a deep sense of comradeliness of not being so alone. I wondered if that, that second point was one of the reasons that you decided to publish your diaries so that you could share your experiences with people, with readers, in the hope that they might perhaps draw some comfort from them. I can't remember the moment at which or the process by which I agreed to publish these diaries. In, in recent years, I've published chunks of, of my contemporary diaries in the monthly magazine and uh, I was surprised to find how much fun it was and how people seem to like it. People often mention it to me and that that was very pleasing to me, and I, I, I'm not quite sure if that's how. I, th I think it was Michael Haywood's idea, my publisher at Text, that I should make make a book, go back and make a book. But I, I don't remember. I don't think I would have had the gall to propose it myself. In a way, I sort of hope I wouldn't, <laughs> but I don't. I don't remember how it came about. Anyway, so I I probably went said to him something like this, oh, look, let me just go back and see what it's like, this stuff up in the, you know, in the late 70s when I got back from, or early 80s when I got back from France and, and see if there's anything there. And when I looked, I thought, oh, yeah, there is stuff here that wouldn't mortify me to publish and maybe so I sort of edged my way into it like that. I, I, I didn't think that my diaries would comfort anyone. I think it was more, I think I was much more hoping that they would comfort me or something would comfort me. But when I went further back, uh, obviously my attitude towards my own writing had sort of shifted in some way in the meantime. 
I think the, the more recent ones um, that, that are published in the monthly magazine, they were ones from during the time when I had already become a grandmother. And so a lot of them were about my adventures with my grandchildren, which I, I found entertaining and was surprised to find that other people did too. Well, you wrote this year also about di- the diaries during lockdown and I think they brought, well, I don't know if comfort's the right word, but certainly they were <laughs> well, perhaps, very, very interesting to people who were experiencing what you were in Melbourne and for those of us who weren't. Yeah, well... You see, I, when um, Nick Fike, who's the editor of The Monthly, when he asked me to do, he said, you, we'd like to publish some more of your diaries over the period of the COVID thing. And I said, oh, I don't think I wrote much. I don't think I wrote anything much about in, in lockdown. I don't think I've got anything there. And when I went back and had a look, I was really surprised to find what there was and what I sort of curated into those lockdown diaries. And a, a lot of people got in touch with me about those diaries and I was, I was really kind of thrilled about it because I think that's one thing about writing in general that I think it's sort of for and writing and reading is so we won't be alone. Mm. And but it, it's always surprising to me to find how if, if another person talks about themselves and their own experience, I find in I find myself having a, an impulsive Comradeliness, comradeliness towards that person, and I, I think that's part of part of the, the whole process of publishing and reading someone's published diary is to find. See, I think everybody thinks they're a criminal or a sinner, I mean, whatever word they might use about it, or a bad person. I think people, uh, people, um, well, most of the people that I like and respect would. Um, have that attitude, a sort of rather bracing attitude towards themselves morally. You've said something lovely about that. Um, you mentioned it earlier, and, and I know you've said it elsewhere, that rereading your diaries made you feel ashamed about some of your behaviour. But you said something really lovely. You said that gradually you became more philosophical as you realised that everybody makes mistakes in their lives. And you said, and there grew in me a new camaraderie with the rest of the human race. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, see, as I was saying before, because of um, the urge to write in, in a diary, in, in my life anyway, is often to calm down or, or, to, or to get a moral handle on whatever it is that I'm doing or whatever situation it is that I'm involved in. And so that means that, there, there are, that I write, write in the diary a lot about times when I don't think well of myself or that I think I behave badly. And what I'm trying to do in the diary is figure out what actually happened and and sort of weigh it up and balance it up against, I don't know, what some, some sort of moral code that I hope I've developed after all these years. I think that sh- showing yourself to other people it's taking a risk because the risk is that they'll think, you did what? You did that? You said that? You cheated in that way? You, but, uh, and I'm sure that some people would, you know, slap the book too and put it away thinking, oh, God, what a wank. But um, so many people have said this, said to me, um, I, this could have been my life mm. and I, I, this could have been my marriage. And and so many times have people said that to me that I realise that I'm, I'm not alone. I'm not. 
I'm not the last womb on earth. Mm. And I, um, in my struggles to live a life involving other people, that I, I'm not such a criminal. And there's a, there's a great relief in that to me. I, I mean, really, I, I take it as a great um, privilege and gift that other people read my stuff and, and that it would turn their minds to their own um, so-called crimes and relieve something. I mean, we're all, everybody's carrying a huge load of guilt and, and shame and failure and uh, it, it does relieve the weight of that, I think, to read about other people's struggles. I want to ask you about how you felt as well when you expressed that. As you've just said, there's quite a lot of self-criticism. Some of it is strongly self-lacerating. It's almost painful to read some of the things you say about yourself, about being marriageable or not being marriageable, about your writing ability, about having lazy writing habits. It's, it sort of can take the reader by surprise how hard you are on yourself. You said that part of the reason for doing that was to try to work things through. Did it have that impact for you once you wrote down those self-criticisms? Did you then start to see yourself more kindly in a, in a more benign way? Oh, I don't know if I can say that. I think um, I, I think that's just the kind of person I am, that I, I, I find it necessary somehow to, um, you know, excoriate myself to some extent. Mm. Um, actually, I read something. Can I look at my diary because my, this is my one I'm keeping at the moment because I, I came upon something. I came upon something really wonderful in a, um, an article by the critic Helen Vendler, and she says, the writing of literature over a lifetime requires from its author a form of heroism. I'm not so sure about that, but anyway, let's have a look what she says. The narrative of that heroism, its successive battles, its defeats, its regroupings, its perplexities, its leaps towards certainty, makes a thrilling story rightly told. And she's about to criticise the biographer, obviously, but she goes on to say um, it's very hard to convey these things to an unliterary reader, she says. The, the issues involved are so difficult in the way a writer leads a life. And she says um, that to, re to resist sloppiness and what she calls moral turpitude in a writer or potential moral turpitude to resist it demands, and this is the point I'm getting at, invention of a strenuous and unremitting sort and self-criticism of a peculiarly harsh and sustained kind. So when I read that, I thought, oh, that's so fantastic. I mean, there's a point to all mm. this and I'm not the only one. See, once again, mm. I read that and I thought, oh, thank God I'm not the only one. That enormous relief you feel when you realise that you're not out there hanging on out on the line to drive with everyone looking and going, oh, my mm. God, look at her, what a monster. Yeah. yeah. But I, I thought I was um, I quoted that with another to in a correspondence with another writer that I was having and we both were um, letting out cries of relief. So <laughs> that, that, that's almost necessary to the production of the, such fine literature, the self-criticism is yeah. almost a, a necessary precondition. Well, it's ferocious criticism is required to to um, self criticism. I mean, to to avoid that that sort of moral that sort of slackness that that can come over you when you're writing. Uh, uh, this is how I'll do it. 
And this brings me to another thing that I've got stuck on my wall, which is something I read about Wittgenstein once in a biography about Wittgenstein, that he, in his, at the philosopher, in his um, class at Cambridge or wherever the hell he was, uh, one of his students turned in a sloppy piece of arguing and Wittgenstein said to him, go the bloody hard way. And I thought, gosh, when I read that, I went all tingly. And I thought, I'm just going to write that down and stick it on the wall. And I, I think that connects up with the Vendler thing. Do it's, you have it stuck on your wall? Do you literally have it stuck yeah, on your wall? Yeah. It, just, it was just a bit of paper in my handwriting saying, go the bloody hard way. And it's been really useful because it's so easy not to go the hard way. It's easy just to, as Vendler was saying, you know, you can sort of slack your way fudge around. It. You could just fudge it or you could, yeah. And I, um, yes, that, that's important to me. Helen, let's talk now about some of the themes in these diaries. As I was saying, there are so many fascinating themes. I wish we had a few hours to talk, but I've had to isolate a couple that I see as the really important ones. The first one I give in the subheading, Love and Freedom. So there's a lot in these diaries about your relationship with V, a married man, and the, the, how the course of that relationship progresses. One thing that emerges from what you write about this relationship is the tension that you feel between wanting to be with him and wanting to have a, a strong relationship and at the same time also wanting to maintain your freedom. And early on you say that him being married you see as a positive because it enables you to keep your freedom. At one point, well, it's back in 1987, early days, you say, I depend on his marriage for balance and for my freedom. A little bit later on, you talk about love as a surrender of freedom. You talk about love as a bondage to time and to another person. My question is this. At one point, you set yourself two tasks. You said to accept that somebody loves you and to accept that at the same time you can be free. Did you succeed in accepting both of those things? That's the sort of question a shrink would ask. <laughs> um, uh, it, it's a hard thing to reconcile, although perhaps um, being married instead of love in that sentence would sort of sling it around a different way. Um, you see, when I first met this person that I call V, I'd been uh, alone for, I don't know, a year, not, not that long since my second marriage broke up. And, uh, and I'd learnt, I thought, I flattered myself uh, by thinking that I had actually learnt to be alone. But a year's not very long to break the sorts of habits that people like me have. And uh, also falling in love is something that uh, when it happens to you, all bets are off. Uh, that little god Eros just comes crashing into your life and just when you think you've got yourself all set up nicely, in comes this thing that we call being in love, falling in love. And it um, it's terribly hard to um, keep a grip on yourself. I think I wonder if this is harder for women than it is for men. I think mm, I was wondering that as well. Yeah, to to find a place to stand, which is your place, and where you don't 
and you don't want to step off it. You don't want to give it up because when you're there, you have that thing which we call freedom, which I don't know how I would ever um, define. But there are, I think there's a conversation somewhere in the diary where someone confides in me that she's having an affair with a married man, someone I don't know well. And she says, why is it, she said, I, I, why is it that I, I thought that seeing this person once a week would be enough, but it's, it's never enough. Why isn't it enough? And I replied in my superior wisdom, uh, not superior wisdom, but when what I thought was, when I look back and I, I see it is a kind of wisdom, um, that what you're doing when you're, when you're in love, like when you're madly in love when all bets are off and you'll do anything to be with that person, doesn't matter who you hurt, you just have to be with them. Um, what what you, you're, you, there's a drive in you at the same time to get out the other side of that, that sort of spasm and paroxysm of, of wanting and loving and desiring and get into a calm life on the other mm. side so you can function and mm. work calmly and not be paranoid if they don't turn up on time. Or mm. uh, that, that uh, I think being in love, being in love in that mad way never lasts. Mm. It just doesn't. It, it turns into something else. And if... Um, if you can, if you're capable of it, and if both the, the loving people are capable of it, it can turn into some something of great richness and stability. But that's the point that I have never been able to reach. Uh, everything goes to shit before I, I get to that point. And uh, uh, this was a great sadness to me in my life. Um, I I have friends who... I see are in rich, deep relationships that, that can last for decades. Quite rare, but when you are with people like that, there's something wonderful about it, um, to be with a couple that's balanced and resolved. Um, yeah, but there's something about me that has not allowed me to to do that. And after this, this third, my third marriage ended, um, which will happen, I think, in Volume 3, um, I thought, okay, well, I feel so bad. This is terrible. But I am never going back there again. I've done it enough. Now I'm whatever age I was. That's enough. I've tried enough. I'm going to give it. I'm going to pass on it from now on. And that was my decision. Let's come now to talk about this really interesting topic of the differences between men and women in this regard and I wanted to talk to you about and maybe this is in part an answer to some of the questions you put to yourself the particular challenges for a woman writer or a woman artist so one of the related themes that I think really permeates the book is the challenge that faces women artists and probably all women in reconciling their professional lives with their domestic lives you've spoken about what you call the struggles for a woman to make a balance between the inner life and the other life and her responsibilities out there. Once you and V start to spend more time together after he leaves his wife, you're very conscious of the need to keep, and these are your words in the diary, enough of myself free for my work and the hours of private mental time that this requires. You're very 
rightly so, vigilant and conscious to make sure that you don't sublimate your needs to the needs of caring for this man who, by the way, as you note throughout the book, has clearly been cosseted and cushioned and cared for very well through his life. How do you think you can balance as a woman writer or a woman artist, how do you balance that inner life with the need to create? The whole thing about marriage is it's so hard. It's a very hard thing to do. And it's particularly hard, I think, for people who um, need a lot of time by themselves. Mm. And it's very easy to hurt someone that, that you love and, and who loves you and to whom you feel that you're committed in some way. It, it's easy to neglect them and to um, go into... See, the thing about it with art, artists, when you're actually working on a project, a book, you're in another world. I mean, part of you is in a, another space and world and it doesn't want to come out of there. It doesn't want to. But... I know. I suppose there are, you know, some artists who um, just go right in there, and I, I think this is what men are inclined to do. Or over the history of, of uh, writers that we read, perhaps in the nineteenth century, that um, you, you they they would just go completely into that world, and that they might have a wife who would put food there, or they might have a maid, or they might just be a, a wild drunkard who staggered from cafe to cafe and kept on working. But women have other needs, I think, um, especially mothers. It's very hard to um, discipline that need you have for completely uninterrupted. Thinking's not even the right word for it. Mm. Space. Space or just a place where you, you're going to be and... You can let your mind roam as it needs to roam and your imagination go and um, to be interrupted when you're in that state is uh, is painful and, and frustrating. And there's something that I've read in the book, um, my friend E and I call the, um, I call the Stravinsky's Lunch Syndrome. V was reading uh, Robert Kraft's biography of Stravinsky, which by all counts is a marvellous book. I, I haven't read it. but um, And he was quite carried away by by the book and, and would talk enthusiastically about it and about Stravinsky's work habits. And uh, there was one that particularly got on one week, which was that Stravinsky would come to lunch. Uh, in you know He obviously had a big house and he had a composing studio. He would come out of his studio, sit down at the lunch table and the food would be served and his wife and children would all be sitting at the table and he would not be spoken to. He did not want to engage with them. He didn't want to speak or listen to or have them speak to him. But not only that, they weren't allowed to speak to each other. And V thought this was great. He, he, he was, thought this was marvellous and admirable. And I, uh, I found this extremely enraging that he did and I said, but that's terrible, that's tyrannical and dictatorial and it's anti-human and it's anti-life. And you go, no, no, because he had he had this, this structure in his head that he was creating of music and he just wanted it not to be shaken up while he had his lunch. They said, well, why didn't he get the maid to bring him something on a plate and he can stay there? Why, why does he have to come out and ruin everybody else's lunchtime? But no, we couldn't agree on this and it was a sort of joke that we laughed a lot. 
But when I would t- tell this to my friends, my women friends, E and R, um, we, we would laugh madly at this, but we, we began to use the phrase the Stravinsky's lunch syndrome to describe this problem, the, the tyranny of uh, a man's uh, artistic needs over all other parts of his life. But um, it, it was rather unnerving to find those needs in oneself. I have to ask, Helen, hindsight's twenty twenty vision, but that particular anecdote, what B thought about it, that that was completely justifiable and reasonable behaviour, as the reader, I did think, did you not hear major alarm bells ringing at that time? <laughs> that you on a mile at that exact point. Yeah. Well, actually, I think that one thing I did notice when I went back through the notebooks, and I was quite amazed to find this, how many moments of that type there were mm. in the book in, in uh, of sort of possible um, mm. alarm bells. Alarm bells. Or little escape hatches, and I just because I was in love, I just yeah. straight past them, didn't even see they were there. And so, uh, and that brings me to another thought about writing diaries: is how, in a sense, what a diary is is it's, it's contemporaneous notes, um, evidence in a way, uh, but notes about situations that you aren't ready to um, to think about properly or to give you full attention to, but way down the track 20 years later, you look back on those notes and go, oh, now I get it. That's what was happening. And here are the notes. And here's what I said and here's what he said and here's what she said and here's then he, then comes the disaster. But um, that, that's one of the experiences of publishing a diary is, is that everyone else is going, wake up, girlfriend. Can't <laughs> see what's happening here. Oh, but we're in love, and uh, yeah, it, it was quite a quite a lesson. Well, as I say, hindsight is twenty twenty vision. Yeah, it's really a lot of interesting. I think discussion just still under this idea of whether two writers can live together as a you know romantic partners. It's clear from the book. Um, he's I know he's not older than you, but you do seem to look up to him, and you have enormous admiration for his intellect, and you really respect the writing advice that he gives you. And you do say at one stage when you ask him for writing advice, he slides into his favourite mode, which is giving you advice. Mm. And to start with, and a lot of the time, you're very grateful for that advice. You think it's very helpful advice. You make the changes. But at one point, he gives you one particular piece of unsolicited advice, and that is that you need to stop writing about the 1970s. Could you paint that scene for us? What's happening there? What you're doing? Where that conversation is taking place and how you respond to it? Well, what, what I think what he actually said was that I should, yeah, wait a minute, let me get this straight. I was in the bathroom. I was cleaning the bathroom. I was mopping. I was scrubbing uh, and merrily, you know, cheerfully scrubbing away. And he came in and leaned on the doorpost and said, um, I've been thinking, um, I think you should stop writing about the 70s. And I go, oh, yeah, why's that? He says because because it was a time of clapped out ridiculous theories, which have which the state of Victoria is still paying for now, all these years later. The conversation then went on about 
No, that's right. I said, well, no, I, I will have to keep writing about those things and, and those households, he said, those households from the 70s that you always write about. I said, yeah, but I, I, I have to keep writing about those things because that was a time of change that deeply affected me and it de- deeply affected all the people I know in my in my, my cohort and my generation. And um, there were really interesting changes that happened uh, in the relationships between men and women in, the, in those times, and they're terribly interesting to me and I'm going to keep on writing about them. And uh, he said, I said, uh, and, for example, um, I said to him, in your work I always feel that um, we're in the 50s. And he said, um, but my books take place in a no time. They're not, in, they're not set in any particular era. And I said, well, they are because the relations and the assumptions about the relations between men and women that sort of come up through the crevices of, of that work show that that, that it, it's a, it's what was in force in in the fifties. And meanwhile, while this conversation was going on, I'm down on my knees scrubbing the toilet, and he had um, not long before actually stated quite brazenly, <laughs> without shame or remorse, that he had never cleaned a toilet in his life. And I mean, this this conversation, this argument that we we're having. It wasn't. A, it was a very harmonious conversation. We weren't fighting or arguing. Mm. But I was once again kind of incredulous, and I thought, I thought I'm not going to make all these points now because you know you get sick of making them. You just and you were busy cleaning the toilet. Yeah, anyway, I was busy. <laughs> but um, I thought it, it, it seemed so. Uh, it was such a, an acting out of of the complete. A split between us in this matter of an, a complete unconsciousness on his part of what had changed in the seventies mm. in the in terms of the relationships about domestic labour, whose job is it to clean the dunny, and uh, I act, I actually find that scene in the diary hilarious. Every time I read it, I just it is out laughing. It it actually reminds yeah. me of the scene we saw uh, recently on television of Scott Morrison addressing the camera with the Minister for Social Security. I just can't remember her name, but he wanted to make the point that there was no problem with women in the Liberal Party. And then she a question was uh, directed to her, which she started to answer, and he interrupted it and talked over the top of her. That's what that story <laughs> yeah. reminded me of. Yeah, I saw that incident. It was actually hilarious. I mean, it's so brazen that you just have to laugh. Yeah. But maybe that's the trouble. You maybe have to stop laughing, but, you know, you can't stop laughing. So I did wonder, is it possible for two writers to live together? Because you you talk about the concept of artists and what they need, men and women, and you say the awful privilege that artists claim for themselves to be mm. on and for, to be protected, at the same time to be left alone. So that's certainly the treatment that he's always had. But I think you're saying there that's part of your query to yourself, well, can two writers or two artists, creative people of any kind ever actually live together in a domestic situation given that they both have that need? Mm. When you put it that way, the answer is no, isn't it? And yet some people do. Do they? Not a lot. Helen, my last questions to you are about women writers. In 1987, early on in this diary, you ascribe a sense of unhappiness with your work to what you call an absence of mothers. You say, I haven't paid proper attention to what women write or have written. By that stage, you published Monkey Grip and several other novels. 
So I wondered, did that change? Did you, having had that thought or realisation in 1987, did you then start to pay more attention to women writers generally, to Australian women writers? And if so, who were they? Hmm. I was surprised to find that in the diary, actually, when I came upon it. You see, those were the days in which I, I, this was in pre the first stone part of my life where I completely fully identified with the whole feminist project and uh, and felt myself to be a deeply dyed feminist. And and that, of course, was all blown up in, in, in the air by what happened after the first stone came out. So back in those days, I... Um, I was surprised to find myself saying that. I, I, I haven't. There's another point in the book where I say how scandalously little I have thought about my own work, and that's also true. But I'm, I'm thinking about there's passages in the diary where I talk about reading uh, Marguerite Duras. I think she was a writer that I could um, uh, see. I saw her doing what I wanted to do. See, I think a lot of the time women writers um, are, are judging themselves by standards that are set by men and mm. about men. Mm. And this, uh, I don't know if this is still the case, but um, there are women writers now that I would that I would go to if I was if I needed help. Somebody who wrote who I didn't actually write all that much like but who or who had pushed way further than I had in the same sort of thing that I'm fumbling towards she'd be one um Lucia Berlin is someone else I've seen you recommend oh yeah well she's hilarious she you know she's wonderful but I I feel towards her a feeling which I would describe as sisterly I think I mean I would I'm sure that if I met her I would immediately adore her and we would sort of just go out and start drinking and cracking jokes but there are other writers uh I would never go into the same room as, like Christina Stead, for example. I'd be too scared. Uh, Elena Ferrante, I'd be too scared. <laughs> um, I think oh, she's marvellous. But I, I have found, as the years went by, certain writers um, that have fallen out of favour. Uh, there's two. There's a woman called Elizabeth Taylor who wrote, who published an, an English writer. And when I discovered her work, I, I, I was, and she would be, I suppose, almost a generation before me. Um, I I love her novels. I find them so funny and and brilliant. But nobody's heard of her anymore, and I don't know why. I don't know why some people just drop out of of notice. And I mean, I'm sure that's going to happen to me. I'll drop out. But then maybe, you know, in another 50 years, if we're all still here, someone will go, hey, have you heard of this person called Helen Garner? She's really funny or whatever. You know, I, I can't imagine there's no reason why I should be spared from this. And it's not just women writers that drop out and get forgotten. I'll tell you one writer who dropped out and was forgotten and who's brought back, and that is Barbara Pym, uh, the British writer. I find her um, absolutely Hilarious and brilliant. There's a lot of references throughout these diaries to your women friends, some of them who are writers, some of them who aren't. 
And there's, there's just a lot of joy about happy time spent with them, drinking pink champagne, conversations that you've shared. And about one of your friends, R, you say, whenever she's with me, I feel cheerful, curious, hopeful. How much has your friendships with other women writers sustained you and fed into your writing and your work? With other women, hugely, not necessarily women writers. I mean, I don't actually... Um, I notice that in, uh, I mean, I don't know how old you are, but I think you're the generation after me. But I noticed that in your generation, um, there's a lot more um, a group uh, ideas of writer, women writers um, reading each other's work mm. um, and form, being in groups that support each other's work. Well, to me, this is completely unthinkable. Yeah. I, I just, it would never cross my mind. I would mm. hate it. I couldn't think of anything I'd hate more. We said, oh, look, I've got a first draft here. Let's all read it. Ah, I'd die. Mm. And, but, but people in your generation don't, don't seem to have that high defensiveness about their work. I, I do have one friend in particular who um, uh, I would show something to, but not, not to say, look, help, this is a mess, what will I do with it? I, I don't like showing my work to anyone until it's as good as I can get it and then, then they can tell me what's wrong with it and then I'll try and make it better. But I don't, um, I, I'm, I'm like that kid, the kid at school who sits with, with her arm around her exercise <laughs> as anybody looks at it. it. It's just mortifying to me to, to think that someone would look at my work when it was in that kind of fluid state. Well, you should know, Helen, just um, I suppose we'll end on this note, but I've, I've interviewed a lot of Australian women writers this year, one way or another, and there are a number of them that talk about you as their, their guiding light, how they, in the way that you look up to, I suppose, some of the writers that you've mentioned, there are at least two or three that I can think have on this program who've said, yes, when I want to really think about my writing or think about what I should be doing, I have Helen Garner's books open before me on the desk. So... Wow. Oh. You should know that. And I think that's, that's does that surprise you? Um, so, sort of. I mean, I, um, but I do know that, um, that that's a feeling of a writer that you like uh, to, to just go and read a couple of sentences of that. Oh, it gives you a shot in the arm. Uh, there, I've got plenty of writers who I feel like that about. But no, I'm, 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 I'm kind of flabbergasted. And, and terribly flattered that you told me that. So I'll have to be really careful <laughs> what I say, what I put on paper. Helen, thank you so, so much for speaking with me today on Books, Books, Books. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbotty.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abadie, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. Since it's a new podcast, it would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.